This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast conversation is brought to you by Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Several School of Divinity alumni have thrived within Baptist life, serving in significant positions of leadership in local churches and larger denominational organizations. The school's newly launched Baptist Commons program draws on this success and fosters student leadership, engages alumni, and cultivates relationships with supporters to deepen its distinct Baptist heritage and role in fostering excellence among diverse communities of Baptists. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu or call 336-758-5121. Our guest for this week's podcast is Margaret Feinberg. Margaret is a prolific writer. Her books, including The Organic God, Sacred Echo, Scouting the Divine, Wonderstruck, Fight Back with Joy, and soon to be released, Taste and See. Margaret, thank you for joining the conversation. It is pure joy. Grateful to be with you. Now, many of us know us, know you, excuse me, let me say that again. Many of us know you as the composer of words within your authored books, but, but tell us more about you. Yeah. Um, I come from a little bit of an unusual background in that I was raised by free spirited hippie parents who came to know Jesus in the seventies movement. And so I grew up moving around a ton living in, uh, I, I lived in Florida. My parents made surfboards and had a surf shop. We, at times I spent years on a boat being homeschooled, uh, lived in Maggie Valley, North Carolina, where we went completely off the grid, which seems so like, cool now, but back in the 80s, it was a little crazy. And so we had our own water sources, food, everything top to bottom, and then settled in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where my parents became ski instructors for over 20 years combined. And I taught for five years myself. And then I fell in love in Alaska. So I share that to say I have been exposed to a ton of different people and cultures within the United States growing up. And I think it's both shaped me pretty significantly and also uh, made me incredibly flexible and <laughs> compassionate, um, just learning to love in those different scenarios. Hmm. Well, uh, it kind of gives me great joy to hear uh, you spent some time in Maggie Valley, which is actually one of my favorite places on planet Earth. Uh, I, I grew up uh, right outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, and we went to Maggie Valley and Bryson City and Cherokee uh, so much for vacation. In fact, I spent most of my fall breaks in college up in that area. So I'm sad to bring you the news that Ghost Town has officially closed down and will never no! reopen. 
no. I mean, I grew up at Ghost Town in the Sky. I learned to ski at Catalucci, like North Carolina girl, even went to school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I love me some Carolinas. Yeah. Well, for you, as, as you hear, you know, you talk about traveling in so many different places. Um, how do you think that helped form you into who you are today? I think it really made me curious above all things. Um, the constant exposure to new ideas, new people, new cultures. Um, it really it made me curious to know more. And I think fed the natural God-given desire for curiosity that I already had. And so I think as I've grown up, I think that's been a gift in the sense of it, it keeps me spiritually hungry, um, wanting to know more, not being content with knowing maybe a, just a sliver of God, but saying, God, show me more, tell me more, expose yourself uh, through your word more and more so that I know you more. Well, you know, I think we're all a product of our upbringing in some way. Um, you know, so you talk about uh, growing up with parents who were free-spirited hippies. You know, I wonder if you might speak to, um, you know, how that how that shaped your worldview, how that shaped your theological convictions, how you view God, how God functions in the world. You know, everywhere that we lived, we attended a different church. So I went to, you know, Southern Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, non-denominational, charismatic. And so from a young age, I had kind of this wide wider perspective perhaps uh on how the church works that it's not it's not just my church it's not just my um you know my understanding of christ but that as you gather around people with different theological backgrounds i think it's really enriching uh for me i look at the various flavors as i would call them or or hues within the body of christ no matter what former you know, denomination or whatever that may be, um, is just as almost as beautiful hues in this in this gorgeous kaleidoscope that God does to reveal His people and His community and His kingdom. And so, learning to appreciate the strengths in all of those um, has it's been really enriching, you know, learning, uh, the, you know, the passion among Southern Baptists for evangelism is just beyond breathtaking and stunning. But I also see the faithfulness and the consistency among the Methodist as just beautiful. And as you start to go down the list of various expressions of faith, you see to see kind of like just the church and, and the beauty that, that God has strengthened each different expression in. Your story is is really fascinating. Um, you know, specifically, I guess I think back uh, the first time I touched uh, Fight Back with Joy. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about um, maybe the last 10, 15 years that's helped give in shape to your writing. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of it has been kind of this underlying desire to help people explore the wonder of God and the wonder of God through his word. And, and what does that look like and how does that affect our prayer life? So for instance, I took a good look at that in the sacred echo and the idea that God doesn't often speak once he often speaks repetitively, that there is this, this almost resounding reverberating nature to God's voice that, that he doesn't just usually say things once he'll say it again and again. And it may be, you know, reading a scripture, reading a devotional, 
uh, passing by a billboard, picking up a random mug, and you keep seeing that same passage or that same word again and again. And that idea that, that maybe if we, instead of strain to listen for the whispers, but we listen for the sacred echoes, that we can walk more fully and more confidently into all God has for us. Um, I got curious a few years ago and went on a journey of scouting the divine to spend time with shepherds and beekeepers and uh, farmers and grape growers in order to explore kind of these 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 professions in the Bible and, and what they could breathe life on into understanding various scriptures. Uh, I wrote a book called Wonderstruck, looking at the wonder of God, just born out of my own desire to live in that vibrant holy awe of who God is. And, um, and then more recently was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer and, and had actually written a book on joy and was two weeks away from turning in the manuscript on that book when I received the diagnosis. And so that trashed my body, it trashed my life, and it definitely trashed that book because I had been looking for joy in the relatively good times of life. And now here I was looking at it in the midst of dark, Darkness, you know, when, when you're looking at doctors and, and having to answer the question of which body part do you want cut off today, that, that's a different perspective and veil to look at joy and recognizing that joy is more than whimsy. It is a weapon we use to fight life's battle. And so when I look back over the body of work, it is, it is my desire to, to follow Jesus and, and to seek him and then to express and to share that through a, a hopefully a, a rich, deep biblical framework of, of what it looks like to be somebody who maybe started pursuing God as a kid and, and, and throughout the teenage years and college with times of, of going in all wild directions. But, but what does it look like to, to keep pursuing that passionate relationship with Christ for the long haul? Mm. Well, so many of your books, um, I mean, they tap into what's going on in your life, which as you make yourself vulnerable, um, certainly others, gravitate to that because you're speaking to areas of their life that they maybe haven't communicated. So I wonder what kind of relationship you have with, with your readers, with, with this broader audience you have. Yeah, I love, I love my readers. I love, I love seeing their faces at conferences. I love interacting with them through social media. I love interacting them, you know, through email, through snail mail. Uh, for me, it's very personal. It, it comes out of a deep philosophy that shapes my writing. Um, I developed a writing course with a friend of mine by the name of Jonathan Merritt. And we have a, a we Many years ago, I mentored him, and then he just he went from publishing one article in Christian Single Magazine, and now he, he writes for The Atlantic, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, so many different outlets, um, you know, shaping the religious conversation across America. But, but in working together and in knowing him and being friends with him, we have this deep philosophy that as writers, our commitment is that we take a, a, a content-driven audience-centric approach. In other words, when I sit down to write, it's, it's not really about me. And in fact, if you really look at my writing closely, you'll discover there's not a single story that I randomly tell. Every single thing is used to leverage, to serve and to love my audience, to know them, to help them grow in their faith, to help them get oxygen in their lungs one more day, to help them and serve them in the ways that, that, that hopefully will unlock their heart for a greater God capacity in their lives. And so that is really shapes everything that, that I write and speak and do. So writing of all things, where did this calling come and how did you begin to step into it? 
Yeah. You know, sometimes you look back in your life and you start to see, wait a second, I think God may have planted something there. I remember crazy story. I was nine years old. We had a book fair at school. They said, you need to go home and write a book. And so what most kids did at nine years old is they took four pieces of paper. They wrote a lot of big words in the front and back, folded them over, stapled them. And that was that. And I came in with a 147 page typed up book and literally put it down and it kind of went boof on the desk and everybody looked and I realized, well, I thought we were supposed to write a book. All the books I know are thick. And so I think tracing way back, there was that gift and that desire to write. But I really, I didn't figure it out until my senior year in college. I was a communications and actually a religion major. And my senior year, I thought, you know what? I think I want to write. And so I took just one class and then I interned at a small magazine uh, in Lake Mary, Florida. And I remember during that internship, I discovered people who work for magazines, they actually don't get a write. They edit everybody else's writing. And I thought, no, I want to write. So I moved back in with my parents. I went down to my little Steamboat Springs, high, or Steamboat Springs library. I checked out all nine books on writing because that's all there were. And they said 97% of writers never make it. And I thought, perfect, let's do it. And so I, I lived with my parents. I started writing reviews in the back of magazines for 15 cents a word and began working my way up from reviews to news stories, to feature stories, to cover stories, and eventually into books. But it was a long process. I would often work two to three jobs on the side. And, and there are so, there's so many days, even now, that I'm tempted to quit. And yet, I think there are some things we run toward and there are some things we can't run away from. And so for me, I know this calling and, and probably for many of the listeners, the thing that you do, it, it may not be that thing that you, that you ran toward, but now, now you can't leave it. it. It chases you down. And I think that's a sweet spot of dependence to be in our relationship with God. Hmm. What's been the most challenging aspects of, of writing? Mm. You know, writing is an incredibly lonely profession. So basically, I hold myself up for months upon months upon months upon months a year and then emerge with something that, that I've developed or worked on, of course, with the insight of friends and feedback and all of those things, but, but then come out and, and, and with all the prayer and with all the hope that it connects in the way that I intended it to. There are times that I'm writing and it'll be one paragraph or one idea. And, and I, I know that I'm writing it for one specific person. That must sound so weird and crazy. And it's probably hopefully more than one person, but, but there are those moments that you're writing and I think you feel the holy hum of God's presence. And that is just pure joy. The problem is, is that in today's publishing world, you know, I may get to write 5% of the time. And so 95% of the time I've had to concern myself with, you know, thinking about marketing and email lists and technology and this new app and things that honestly are not my gifting and are not my calling. And that, that can push me into days of, you know, in the red, yellow, and, and, and green, just living in the red and that just exhausting taxing space when, when all I really want to do is write and yet recognizing that for the most part in today's age, that, that is largely a part of being a writer. You know, the days of just writing and giving it to a publisher, you know, I think are for, you know, except for the people who were grandfather claused into that writing and in kind of an old publishing model, that is not the reality anymore. And so much of the burden falls on the author now. And some days that, that burden gets really heavy. What's your greatest hope? Mm. Mm. My greatest hope is that when this whole shindig is over, 
that we will gather around a table with the beauty and wonder of all of the saints and that each of us, because of the encouragement and the service that we have done, will hear that well done, good and faithful servant. And that that will be the resounding call, not just on my life, on all of our lives. And getting to be part of that and, and both a giver and a receiver in that is just, that is my greatest hope. Hmm. You can't take the poet out of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, you know, our listeners would say they they know who my uh, author and theologian crushes are. I wonder if you might share with us, um, you know, the authors, uh, the theologians, those that give you um, inspiration. Yeah, um, I'll take N.T. Wright any day, every day. Um, I enjoy, of course, Beekner is just such a gift in his way with words. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor and um, the way that she pushes me in my thinking, but at the same time, the stunning prose with which both her books and her sermons are fashioned is just, it's breathtaking. Uh, those would be a few as far as um, Ken Bailey for his, just his fresh take on familiar texts pushes me and challenges me. Uh, I read a lot of obscure writers and a lot of obscure books. So a lot of them are 50 or 100 years old and, and most people have never heard of them. I'm, I'm reading a book about you know the ABCs of food in the Bible right now. Um, I'm reading all kinds of, um, uh, you know I read a global history of salt recently, uh, global history of figs. I've read, uh, uh, so I'm constantly learning and researching and the stack of books in my house to read is probably far greater than what I will ever accomplish in this lifetime, but I keep buying them anyway. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. All right, hang with me for a second. Fight Back with Joy was inspired by your battle with cancer. Wonderstruck yep. was about becoming more attuned to the voice of God in our lives and in the world around us. Flourish is a 52-week devotional about love and freedom. And then there is Taste and See, a book about food. So walk us through the inspiration for this book. <laughs> I kind of hinted at it before, but um, a number of years ago, about actually a decade ago, I wrote a book called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey, and, and looked at, at, you know, spent time with shepherds and beekeepers and farmers and grape growers and opened up the Bible and asked this question of how do you read these texts, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers, honestly, they changed the way I read the Bible forever. I mean, time and time again, I found myself asking, how did I grow up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons and so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? And so I finished that book and released it. And I remember there were these people who kept coming up to me and they said, Margaret, I have one question. 
I said, what? They said, why didn't you spend time with an olive grower? And the answer was because there wasn't enough time and it took so much work and effort just to really solidify those four. But I thought one day I'm going to write about that. And so I have been waiting to write about that olive grower uh, for about a decade. And this past fall, um, it just it just felt time. I had some friends who had a lovely intervention call with me and just said, hey, it's time for you to write again and to dive into something that's really deep and meaningful and personal to you. And so um, I started to look at the all of it. And as I started to look at the other elements, I, I realized that even back when I was writing Scouting the Divine, they were all food in the Bible. And so I thought, what if what if I took a look at food in the Bible? What would I find? And what I began to discover is that it pops and sizzles on almost every page from the beginning of Genesis with the opening of a Zagat buffet by God in the garden to the closing of Revelation, you know, where we will feast and partake, where, where Jesus describes standing at the door of our hearts and wanting to sup, wanting to dine with us and thinking, okay, with thousands and thousands of mentions of food in the Bible, what, what would it look like? Uh, to, to start to zero in on a handful of those foods. And so in the end, I zeroed in on six foods and I began to seek out people who plant and procure and process those foods. And then began again to open up the Bible and say, how do you read these passages? And man, it, the scriptures just came alive in a whole new way. I, I, I mean, I've read mentions of food. I imagine most of our listeners have too. You have. And there's a sense of, yeah, there's food in the Bible. Cool, cool. Yeah, God provides for us. Cool, cool. But when you start to understand just how much goes into from God the creator to, to the sustaining, to the provision of food that represents his characteristics and reveals him, that, that God could have made us as humans, as people who lick stones or eat rocks, right, in order to survive. And instead, he fashions mangoes and the slices of tangerines and the the tastiness of, of leaven or unleavened bread. And he makes these with these delicate flavors and then he places tens of thousands of taste buds on our tongues that we would be a people who would recognize that God's love it, it is not just to be seen it is not just to be experienced but it is literally meant to be tasted each day this book was about a journey across the country and around the world uh, to see and to taste how did these stories of those you encounter change your way of seeing the world and, and God Mm. Yeah, you know, I went uh, for Taste and See, both the book and the Bible study. I traveled to Croatia and brought in a olive harvest uh, with a family who lives so remote they don't have electricity. Uh, I went and I fished on the Galilee. I went 410 feet down into a salt mine. I found an expert on ancient grains at Yale University and invited myself into his kitchen to bake bread for an afternoon. I even tracked down one of the premier fig farmers in the world and, and picked and ate figs and learned all about the growing of figs. And what I began to discover is when you just study these, these foods on a granular level, that there are, there are moments in the scripture that come alive in a whole new way. Um, let me give you an example. So for the, the fig. I always thought that a fig tree, because I'm not very experienced in fig trees, I don't know if you are, but but I didn't know about a fig tree. I just thought whenever figs were there, I was like, cool, cool, like any other uh, fruit tree in the Bible. Yeah, that's what that's like. And then I go and spend time with a fig farmer, and I begin to understand that figs are completely different. In fact, they are they are completely, a fig tree is completely green with all of its leaves and all of its fruit, 
until just days before that fruit will begin to ripen. And the fruit doesn't ripen all at once. You actually have to go out and you have to look up and all around the tree each day in order to pick the most ripe figs, which are also the sweetest. And so when we see Nathaniel sitting underneath a fig tree, we, we also reflect on the deep Jewish tradition that the study of the Torah, of the scripture, is compared to sitting underneath a fig tree. Why? Because you look up and you're realizing that everything looks green until just days before a particular fruit is going to ripen. And, and then you look and you search for that one and you pick it and you have to do that day after day. And that's how we're invited to dive into the Torah and to the richness of God's word in that same way. And so when we find Nathaniel sitting underneath a fig tree and Jesus saying to him, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We know that there was something that he was seeking in God, most likely underneath that fig tree that Christ was specifically answering to. And so when Jesus says, pay attention to the fig tree, it's not just, oh wait, look for the big harvest, but look for a tree that is slowly ripening its fruit and doesn't just do that once, but can do that two or three times during a growing season. And so we start to receive this deeper invitation to people who are living on high alert paying extra close attention to God and his work in his world, in his word and in our world. Mm. Now the book zeroes in on six uh, key food items from scriptures that speak to deeper spiritual meanings of our life and the world. And we, we want our listeners to go and read the book, but I wonder if you might share the most significant food item for you. Mm. Oh, there's so many. Okay. The most significant I think one that really stuck with me was going that 410 feet down into a salt mine because growing up, I always thought about salt as, um, as table salt. I mean, it's common, it's inexpensive. The truth is we don't think about it a whole lot. Uh, some of us have maybe a few salts, the Himalayan, the peach colored salt, but, but most of us, when we go to an average restaurant, salt is free, it's easily accessible, but that is a far cry from the ancient world where salt was a prize commodity. And part of the reason salt was so prized was because of the difficulty, the technology required in order to harvest salt, whether that was in the ocean, whether that was in a salty lake, or whether that was a salt mine in the ground. And then even after you had the technology in order to harvest it, the high cost of transportation in antiquity made it just a, a prized commodity. But, but once you had salt, it had the ability to preserve food, which was so important because we have to understand that it wasn't like today where you just went down to Costco or your local grocery store and you bought a ton of food. Food was often a daily provision. Um, only the very elite, the very wealthy were able to stockpile large amounts of food. And the, the average person who was a peasant literally needed their daily food to survive. So if you could uh, apply salt to a piece of meat or to a piece of fish, and suddenly that piece of meat or fish could last for six months or 12 months. That was, a, that was a complete game changer in a world without refrigeration. And so for me, studying salt, one of the, the takeaways that I had was salt in antiquity, they never thought about our white table salt on the table. In fact, most of the salt had a specific color to it, especially that which was mined or that which was brought maybe from the Dead Sea, and that it was mined with the surrounding minerals. It wasn't processed in a 97% clean sodium chloride with some added iodine and other ingredients. And so the salt was given a unique flavor and actually was better and richer and, and often uh, it contributed to, to better health. Um, 
with all of those surrounding minerals. And I think about Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. And I think about that we are not meant to be all matchy-matchy. We are not meant to be, he was never speaking of high, high sodium chloride, purified, chemically altered, fortified. He was speaking about salt that came from its natural habitat, that had surrounding minerals, that gave it unique colors, unique hues, unique flavors, unique properties. Just as you and I, as the salt of the earth, we are individuals who God has created and fashioned with personalities and quirks and strengths and giftings and talents. And that we are called to be the salt of the earth, not as matchy-matchy to everyone else, but in the uniqueness that God has formed and fashioned us. I think for me, the most significant food item was uh, olive oil. Um, I used to speak about olives. In the, in the book, I acknowledge the healing power of olives from the outside, softening tough and cracked skin, and the inside, providing bodies with anti-inflammatories that relieve pain and slow aging of bones. I guess why this chapter uh, spoke to me the most is um, that it might be what our relationships and our families and our churches and our communities need right now, the softening and the healing touch of transformation. And one of the things you wrote stuck out to me, we are called to be people who give and receive anointing and prayer. The act itself can be healing as we make ourselves vulnerable, allowing someone to enter our space and physical, physically touch us to remind us that we are not alone. Mm. You know, it's interesting. People, people ask, what, why did you write this book? Like, what, what were you really trying to get at? And, and there is food and there's scriptural insight and there are wonderful adventures. This is like eat, pray, love for Christians. I mean, it, it is, it is full of, of, of just wild adventures, funny stories, all of the things. But I think we're living in a time in history where things are so profoundly ungrounded and so shaky and there is so much fear and the table and food becomes a place where we can know and be known where we can encounter and be encountered where god can show up we can invite the holy spirit to appear and and we can begin engaging in that life giving healing relational the stuff that in many ways money can't buy um that 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 thing that says, I am not alone anymore, and that we are together being vulnerable enough to confess that we are, we are not our own, that we cannot sustain on our own, that all of humanity by God was given this gift that we need food in order to survive, but we also need each other in order to survive. I mean, when God looked at Adam and said, it is not good, what did he create? He created another human for Adam to be with. And so we have all of this in the garden and we have all of this today, this, this opportunity to gather, to know and to be known and to provide that healing. And in many ways to provide that sense of grounding um, that I think that, that our nation and our world is, is needing and is hungering for. So I love the book, uh, but I have one critique um, I think it's too late for production. I think, <laughs> I think chapter three should have been titled damn these figs, but they are good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So true confession. I had never eaten a fresh fig before writing this book. 
I always thought all figs were dried. I did, I did not know. I did not live in a place where there were fresh figs. And so one of my quests in this book was go and experience and pick and harvest and literally pick them off the tree and let them melt in your mouth figs. And when you pick a perfectly ripe fig, um, they're only available in the grocery stores for about two weeks in June. And then you might get a little peak in July or August for the really fresh, the brave crop, that first crop. It is, it rivals almost any dessert in the world. It is that sweet, juicy, succulent, man, they're good. What's your greatest hope for the book? Mm, my greatest hope is that people will read it and that God will speak to them through it, but that they will not just allow this to be a book that they put on, on the, on their, shelf, that this will be a book that starts to transform their lives around their dining rooms and in their kitchens. That perhaps, you know, like some of the suggestions to get uh, a few different salts from around the world. You can find them in your local grocery store. They don't have to be super exotic, but to put them out where that can be a place of talking about what it means to be the salt of the earth, to talk about people's unique giftings, that you can start lining your kitchen and your living room and your life and your dining table with these opportunities to, to truly open up connections with one another, to know and to be known, to get into those deeper conversations, to go beyond the common questions. So often we go to restaurants, we, we engage in the same conversations with people. You know, where are you from? What do you do for work? How many kids do you have? What's the weather? Uh, how did you two meet? Right? Like, like those are the standard kind of go-to questions. And what I'm hoping to do is to shift people's mindset that when they go and share a mirror, whether at a restaurant or at their house, that they invite the Holy Spirit before the meal ever begins to say, Holy Spirit, would you show up tonight? Would you invade our conversation that, that perhaps during that evening, they would be intentional about asking just a simple question of where do you see God or the divine or the Holy Spirit, depending on that person's background, working in your life and, and be open to the response and to, to be open to where that, that turn in the conversation may take you, that, that you would recognize meal times as transformation times of both the work that God is doing in you and the work that God is doing at everyone around that table. Because in our fast food culture, those moments are becoming ever more valuable, ever more powerful, and ever more transformative if we allow. Besides a chapter on the grapevine, which I hope is included in the extended edition of this book in a year, uh, what do you feel like is missing from this? Ooh, in this book? Yeah. What, That's a great get... question. That's a great question. I think what's missing is the sequel. <laughs> I would love to do a book that looks at artisanal themes in the Bible, that looks at weaving and pottery and artistic expression um, in, in the scripture. We are living in such a DIY time uh, where we are creating, I mean, it's amazing what my friends and your friends are creating. It's beautiful. It's, it's innovative. It is gorgeous. And I think many of us are lacking a, a theological framework and a biblical framework for why you're doing what you're doing and why it's so important and why your gifts and your talents and your artistic expressions matter, especially in this age. So I would love, I think that's what's missing from this book is the next one. Well, I mean, full disclosure, I asked that question so that any creative ideas you come up with, I get 10% credit. Or <laughs> I love it. I love it. But you should ask for 15. Yeah, sorry. <laughs>
Well, uh, for those that are interested in following Margaret, you can visit her website, margaretfeinberg.com. You can find her, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and of course, go purchase, taste, and see where books are sold. Margaret, thank you for inviting us to see the profound traces of God and the simplistic objects of every day. Thank you. So grateful for you. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.